Well, brethren, for this morning, we're going to consider this title that I'm giving, Keeping Our Perspective. So let's pray and ask that God will help us. Our Father, we thank you that you have helped us to come before you with the reading and the singing and the prayers. And now we ask that you will continue with us as we come to consider in a focused way this theme in 2 Timothy. We pray that you would help us, your people, that you would strengthen our, our resolve and strengthen our faith and that you would be pleased to open the eyes of those who yet may be in darkness, that we will not question whether or not you have been with us this hour. We pray, for you have said, Lord, that where two or three gather together in your name, there you are in their midst. And so, Lord Jesus, we look forward to your presence, to what you have to say to us this morning, Grant our need by helping us by your spirit. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you have the outline of what we're going to consider this morning, keeping our perspective. And that's the desire of my heart when living in the world and our nation we know that change is afoot. And change is something that is continual. Some change comes a little bit too drastic. But nonetheless, things are changing. Now, I'm no prophet. I'm not foretelling the future. But it's just simple observation. And the church is impacted by such change, not only just in our nation, but in our world at large. And therefore, it is vital that we as the people of God keep our perspective. And so by way of introduction, as you see in the notes, perspective is the way we think about things. You know, it's how we view our lives and the world around us. People have opinions. This is my opinion. This is your opinion. Well, that's how you look at situations, whether it's your life or the world. But as Christians, our perspective is to be based upon the Bible. Not upon how we feel. Not upon what our mom and dad has done. But based upon the scriptures. And so in Romans 12, if you're familiar with that, you can turn there. I'm just going to briefly comment on that. But in Romans chapter 12, Paul writes to the believers at Rome. And these are words we've heard before, but it bears repeating. In Romans 12, verse 2, Paul says, And be not fashioned according to this world. But be ye transformed, that's where we get the word metamorphosis, that, uh, that caterpillar that turns into a butterfly. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The world is not silent. The world continues to exert pressure upon the people of God to conform to its ways, its values. We read in 1 John, John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, that is, that satisfies the physical desires, there's nothing wrong with satisfying physical desires, but to make an idol out of that and to engage in sinful ways to satisfy those desires, that is wrong. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, that is covetousness, wanting to have things that you see and, and you desire to have this or that and the other, and the pride of life, the desire to be somebody. 
to find some fulfillment and recognition because you're the top dog. Well, maybe people don't talk like that anymore. But you're, um, you're the one who has achieved much in life. And you have people who are your underlings. Or you just want to be respected and admired. But these are the things that people in the world are living for. And this world is passing away. But the world isn't silent. As I said, the world continually exerts pressure upon the people of God. And therefore, Paul says, do not be fashioned according to this world. And therefore, in order to not be confashioned to this world, we need to have our minds renewed and that by the scriptures. And so when we speak about perspective, how do we see the world? When we hear the news or when we hear events, or when we are exposed to advertisements or other things, or what people are doing, what people are defining what is meaningful in life. How do we respond to that? How do we think about these things? Well, our perspective ought to be shaped by the Word of God. And so what i like to do today is i like for us to draw alongside the Apostle Paul and to learn from him how to keep our perspective as Christians. That is, what the Bible has to say about life and everything else. And so we asked, I would ask that you will turn with me to 2 Timothy. To 2 Timothy. Although 2 Timothy, it is an epistle that Paul wrote to his younger laborer in the faith, Timothy, who was like a son to Paul. And very often, pastors, ministers look at this for guidance and instruction, which is right that they do. But also, there are things in 2 Timothy that's for the people of God. You don't have to be a minister to profit from 2 Timothy. Now, one thing I want to note firstly, before we get into some of the content here, is Paul's circumstances. Um, if you look at chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, Paul writes, and he says in verse 6, For I am already being offered, and the time of my departure is come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day, and not to me only, but also to all them that have loved his appearing. Paul is about to leave this world. And we'll see some of the other verses where Paul makes reference to the fact that he is, he is treated as a criminal. He is in bonds. It is, he is in prison. And he is awaiting execution. Now I've learned that the type of prison that he is in at this point, in those days they had some of these prisons or jails will be called a bottleneck dungeon. A bottleneck. You think of a manhole cover where uh, one person can go into that cover that covers the ground. You move that and you go down into this hole and once you get down to the bottom, it's a base that broadens around. So you think of a bottle with a neck. And then at the base of it, it widens. It's broader. And so these dungeons were like a bottleneck dungeon. And that's where Paul was. That was his circumstance when 2 Timothy was written. And Paul, as a Roman citizen, he, is given the, he has the right to give a defense in court. But he is there, the sentence has been passed, and Paul is destined to be executed because of the gospel. So those are his circumstances. Now Paul, I want us to observe his experience toward the end of his life. You think of being a Christian, especially when you're young, and you look at older Christians who seem to be so mature. Granted, they are mature. But they just seem to be so, like they just have it together. They've walked with the Lord for many years. 
They know how to live. They're happy. They're content. And you say, man, I hope someday to be like them. And you may think that perhaps when you get older in the Lord, it's not so difficult to live the Christian life. It's become, it becomes easier. Well, I got news for you. Not that I'm the oldest person that's been around, but it doesn't get easier. But you do have a track record of God's faithfulness in your experience where you know what you need to do and you trust him. But his yoke is easy, Jesus says, and his burden is light. And God gives grace and you know that you're going to be all right. And so Paul, he experienced disappointment to the end of his life. You know, it's something when you're young and you're going through things and you figure, once I get beyond this, then maybe perhaps we can get on with life and things could be more settled. We can have some calmness. We can get beyond this excitement, beyond these trials, and we can just be by those still waters. And God does lead you by still waters. He does bring you into green pastures, but that's not all that the Lord does. And God knows how to temper things to have a, this perfect balance for us that we need in order that we may persevere to the end. And so Paul, he experienced disappointment to the end. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says this. This you know that all that are in Asia turned away from me. Of whom is Phygelus and Hermogenes? All in Asia, they turned away from me. That's a disappointment, isn't it? You go to reach out, and brethren have forsaken you. Notice in chapter 4, Paul urges Timothy to come with diligence. And why does Paul urge Timothy? He says in verse 9, give diligence. Do your utmost, Timothy. Make it a priority to come shortly to me. Timothy, I need your presence. I need your fellowship because Demas has forsaken me. Having loved this present world. And Demas is mentioned elsewhere in the book of Colossians, in Philemon, as a fellow laborer with Paul. Demas was a man that prayed with Paul. He was a man that preached the gospel with Paul. And Paul felt it. Yes, Paul was a champion of the gospel, but Paul was a man with feelings like the rest of us. He was a man of like passions as we are, and he felt it when Demas forsook him. And he felt it so that he urged Timothy, Timothy, please hurry and come. I really need your presence here. And can you think of perhaps those who once named the name of Christ, sat and worshiped with you, prayed with you, maybe did some outreach, Maybe you've gone through some things together and then the day has come when they turned away from everything. They turned away from the gospel. They no longer name the name of Christ. They're in the world and you wonder what happened to them. Well, as we know in the, in the previous hour, in the doctrines of grace, that if we know our Bibles, we know that when people do things like that, they're simply manifesting that the root of the matter is not in them. And we know that once a person is saved, they cannot lose their salvation. Oh no, that doesn't, that doesn't happen in God's work of grace, of salvation. The scriptures are very clear about that. But when there is a turning back like that, it's just a manifestation of where that person's heart has been. But it hurts. It's not the attitude, well, good riddance. Now the church is more purified. We're better without them. But there was a relationship. There was love. There was fellowship. 
You were together, and you've experienced that. And Paul experienced this to the end of his life. Also, look at verse 16. Remember I spoke about how in the Roman culture, Rome was known for the Pax Romana, known for its military that kept the Roman peace. I learned this from Pastor Sarva. <laughs> and, um, and also their jurisprudence, the law. And that's how they maintained their civil order in their society. Rome was known for that. And therefore, as a Roman citizen, there was due process to be followed. And so Paul had the opportunity to give a defense, to stand in court and give his defense. But when he stood in court, notice what he says, at my first defense, no one took my part, but all forsook me. Now, Paul was not bitter. He said, may it not be laid to their account. But it was a disappointment. I mean, when you're in your hour of need and you're looking around for your friends, for your support, and they're not there. They're not there. That was a disappointment. But Paul was gracious about it. He wasn't bitter about it. He recognized the weakness of men. And he said, may the Lord not lay it to his charge. Now also, Paul experienced persecution to the end of his life. I mean, the very things I've just said is the pinnacle of his persecution, his own execution. He's undergone persecution throughout his life and ministry, many beatings, many stripes. We read that in the book of Acts, how Paul has been thrown into prison. He has been beaten. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians on a number of occasions, how he was um, beaten with many stripes. And, um, and so, bear with me, I, I'm preaching off my outline, that's why I'm missing some things. Um, so Paul, he, um, look, notice here in, in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Notice what Paul says to Timothy. He says in verse 11 of chapter 1, jumping in the context, we'll come back to this. Paul speaking about himself, whereunto, meaning about the gospel that he's preaching, whereunto I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, for which cause I suffer also these things. So Paul is suffering, even now, as a prisoner of the Lord. He is in bonds, in prison. He speaks about it in chapter 2. When he says in verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead of the seed of David, according to my gospel, wherein I suffer hardship unto bonds as a malefactor or a criminal. And so he's in prison because of the gospel. And then he says in chapter 3, verse 11, or verse 10, just to get the flow of it, verse 10 of chapter 3. But you, that is Timothy, you did follow my teaching, conduct, purpose, and faith, long-suffering, love, patience, persecutions, sufferings, what things befell me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Persecution isn't over. It's not that Paul is sitting at a resort or sitting in his retired home, although the book of Acts end that way, he was really under arrest. He wasn't at a resort. But it's not as though he's endured the life of hard knocks. He's in retirement. And now people are coming to get his sagacious wisdom as a wise Christian man. So Paul, tell us about this. Tell us about the other. It is not in that context. That is not how Paul finishes his race. He finishes his race through being persecuted to the very end of his life. Another thing that regarding Paul's experience or Paul's thought 
is that Paul was realistic. He, he really expected that the world would become worse and not better. Paul doesn't speak in terms of, you don't see anything that suggests when you're reading the epistles of the New Testament that the world is going to improve because of the gospel. That this present evil age is going to improve. That people are going to come to know the Lord and that there's going to be revival and there's going to be a turning to Jesus in this a real widespread turning so much so that the world is going to get better. Notice what Paul says in, in chapter three. He says in verse one, 2 Timothy three, but know this, he says, know this. That in the last days, grievous times shall come. And by the way, the last days is the period of the time from which Jesus ascended to heaven, which is nearly 2,000 years ago, until the time that Jesus shall return. And a thousand years with the Lord is like one day. So Paul says, in the last days, grievous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of self, lovers of money, Boastful, haughty, railers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, implacable, slanderers, without self-control, fierce, no lovers of good, traitors, headstrong, puffed up, that is, they're so proud and arrogant, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And even in religious circles, they hold a form of godliness, but having denied the power thereof. Just formalism, religious formalism. From these also turn away. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 12, after he says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution, but evil men and impostors shall wax Worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And then in chapter 4, he urges Timothy, he charges him solemnly to preach the word. He tells them, verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure the sound doctrine, but having itching ears will heat to themselves teachers after their own lusts and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to fables. That does not sound encouraging. Grievous time will come. Evil men shall wax worse and worse. And even when it comes to preaching the gospel, people are going to turn away from it because they have itching ears to hear something else. They don't want to hear about sin, repentance, holiness, sanctification, glory in heaven, the joy even in the midst of suffering that the Christian knows is joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. In the, midst. the world doesn't want to hear this. People don't want to hear that. And so they're going to turn away and they're going to get other teachers who are going to tell them what they want to hear. And those churches will be large and filled to capacity. But there is no truth and Jesus is not there because they are not gathering in Jesus' name. They're gathering in their own name. For the promotion and the encouragement and the advancement of their own lusts. And Jesus has no part of that. And so here you see Paul ex expected things would get worse and not better. So anything inspiring that you heard so far? <laughs> you say, oh man, is this what I come to church to hear? Well, Paul was a realist, and brethren, no doubt, even as I read through the list there, we see echoes of that in our own culture, don't we? We see echoes of that. 
not only echoes, we see it played out before our very eyes. But nonetheless, now let's look at Paul's perspective, all right? Paul's experience, Paul's perspective. And Paul, in the midst of all of these things he described, Paul was a man that was marked with joy and gratitude. Notice how he begins the letter. Look at chapter 1. Paul identifies himself, the apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First thing he says at the Yields' introduction, he says, I thank God. Those three words. I thank God. Wait a minute. He's in this bottleneck dungeon. He's in this hole in the ground. Vermin is there. And he is waiting to be executed. And he writes to Timothy and he says, I thank God. Now, most people would say, Is this what I get for serving God? God is unrighteous. Look at all that I have suffered for Jesus. And is this what I get as a result of everything I suffered? It's the attitude of entitlement, right? No entitlements in the kingdom of God. God takes care of his children. We don't don't need entitlements in God's kingdom. And Paul was a man of joy. He said even the mark of the grievous days, the last days, is that people will be unthankful. But Paul was not that person. Even though he experienced disappointment to the end of his life, even though he was experiencing persecution to the end of his life, and even though he expected, not because he was a Uh, uh, a depressed or morose or a guy that always look at the bad side of things. If you know the Chronicles of Narnia, Narnia, Puddleglum, he always look at the negative side of things. It could be a sunny day, but he said, yeah, but it may rain or we may have thunder or we may fall down and scrape our knee and break our neck. I mean, he'll look at the negative side of everything. And Paul wasn't like that. Paul, he saw Life as it really was. And so he thanks God and he was thankful because of the faith in Timothy, the faith that was in his mother and in his grandmother. He was thankful and he was thankful for this gospel that he is suffering for. This gospel that brings great joy to his heart. And so Paul was a man that had joy and gratitude in the midst of these circumstances. Another thing regarding Paul's perspective is that Paul did not despair, but he was confident. He was confident because he knew that the Lord was with him. He was confident. Notice the language here. As he writes to Timothy, verse 7 of chapter 1, he said, God has not given us a spirit of fear. And we'll come back to that. But as he goes on, as he tells Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear. And Paul urges Timothy to suffer for the gospel. But then Paul begins to expand about what this gospel is in verse 9. Who, that is God, through Jesus, who saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose of grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before times eternal, but hath now been manifested by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This gospel, Timothy, is so glorious Whereunto I was appointed a preacher 
and an apostle. And this is the reason why I suffer the way that I do. This gospel is worth suffering for. It is a glorious gospel. Jesus has abolished death. And he has brought, God has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. There is a way out of this misery. This world is not all there is. We're not just destined to live, be miserable, suffer, and die, and that's it. No, we that are believers, life and immortality has been brought to light. We are now aware of this, and this hope is found through the gospel, and Jesus has abolished death, and Timothy, it is worth suffering for. Paul, and then notice what else he says. Verse 12, he says, For which cause I suffer these things, yet I am not ashamed. You know, peer pressure. Young people, children. Peer pressure. When all the other kids are doing it, or when all the other kids have this, or all the other kids can go to that movie, and all the other kids can go to that, I want to go too. I don't want to be left out. And then if I don't go, they're going to make fun of me and say, well, why didn't you go? Why aren't you doing this? Why don't you do the other? And then they feel ashamed, and they don't want to feel ashamed but you know, we're the same way as adults. We're the same way. Whether it could be some policy, whether it could be in the office, whether it could be your status, your stage of life, what you supposedly should have accomplished by now, and comparing yourself with your neighbor, with your peers, and be, if you, you see other people, they have this, they have the other. You see them, they have grandchildren, and you're still waiting for yours. Or they have that vacation home, whatever it may be. I mean, I'm just listing things off the top of my head. And there's a sense to feel a bit of shame if you're not keeping up with the Joneses, or keeping up with the crowd, or keeping up with our culture, remember? We are not to be fashioned according to this world. The world is always putting pressure upon us. And how as believers, if we actually believe what the Bible says, and we actually sincerely and genuinely seek to live according to the word of God, do you know what that's going to look like? Do you know what people are going to say about me in the office and how they're going to look at me? And, you know, there's a tendency to feel some shame because you don't want to be mocked. You don't want to be looked down upon. You don't want to be disrespected. You want to be respected in the eyes of other people. We all would like that. But when it comes to the truth, my brethren, when it comes to what God has said in his word, if the Bible is clear, brethren, then if we know that we're going to incur the frown or the, the mockery or the despising of others, then if we know that we are doing what God has called us to do, brethren, we have nothing to be ashamed of. And that was Paul. Paul says, for which cause I suffer these things, yet I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. For I know him whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to guard that which I have committed to him against that day. Paul, you're in that hole in the ground. Paul, you're about to be executed. I am not ashamed. Paul, you're crazy. I'm not crazy. I've kept the faith. There is a crown of righteousness that awaits me. I have fought the good fight. I'm not crazy. Whether we are beside ourselves, he said elsewhere, it is for your cause. And I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul, why would you allow yourself to be treated and to be in prison and to suffer because of the gospel? Is it really worth it? Is it worth it? Yes. Yes. You see, Paul was confident 
because he knew that the Lord was with him. Notice it at, um, back to 2 Timothy 4, chapter 4. Remember at his first offense, no one was there. Paul said, hey, that's okay. I don't lay it to their charge. Look at verse 16 of chapter 4. At my first offense, no one took my part, but all forsook me. May it not be laid to their account. But the Lord, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And so there is Paul, when all has forsaken him, Paul doesn't go into despair. All my friends are gone. They've all forsaken me. He doesn't curl up into a fetal position and, to, and begin to cry. Or he doesn't get angry and kicks the, kicks the desk and say, but he says, the Lord stood by me. The Lord strengthened me. Remember the promise that we read in Hebrews where God says, for I will in no wise leave you nor forsake you. Be free from the love of money, content with such things as you have. For I, for he himself has said, I will in no wise leave you nor forsake you. The good shepherd does not forsake the sheep. He's going to be with us till he brings us safely to himself. And so Paul was confident because the Lord was with him. Also, Paul worshiped God. He worshiped God. Look at the next verse here. Uh, actually, verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and will save me to his heavenly kingdom. I said, well, wait a minute, Paul. The Lord's going to deliver you. The Lord delivered you from the mouth of the lion and you're there in this bottleneck dungeon and you're waiting to be executed. What are you talking about, Paul? You're not being delivered. You're about to be executed. You're still in chains. You're still in bonds. Paul says, no. The Lord has delivered me out of all these afflictions. He said that earlier in chapter 3, when he spoke about persecutions at Iconium, at Lystra, and how he says, and out of them all, the Lord delivered me. And even in this situation, the Lord is going to deliver me. He's going to deliver me even in my death because there awaits me a crown of righteousness. It's not the end of me when I die. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And we walk by faith and not by sight. And so he said we are of good courage in 2 Timothy 5. And so he says the Lord will deliver me because the Lord is with me. The Lord will not forsake me even in this. The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and will save me unto his heavenly kingdom. And note the expression of worship to whom be the glory. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see that expression of worship? That expression of worship defies everything that's going on around him. That expression of worship defies his circumstance. Paul is showing his freedom. He was a free man in that hole in the ground. He was free from the pressure of the world and of this evil age. He was free from fear. He was free from despair. He was a man who was full of hope and expectation that there's a crown of righteousness that awaits me. He was so free 
that he could worship God even in those circumstances to whom be the glory. I tell you, my brothers and sisters, that is freedom. He was a free man. You see his perspective? You see our perspective? So as we, I have two lines of observation and act, application at Gravitas. Firstly, is that the Christian life is a paradox or is paradoxical. Paradox, children, the word paradox, it, it's like something seems to be the opposite of what it is. It seems to be a contradiction. Children, Jesus said, happy or blessed are they that mourn. You know what mourning is? It's when you're, you're sad and you're crying. And Jesus said, that's good. And you said, but that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, does it? Well, how can someone who is sad be blessed? That doesn't make sense. Or Jesus said, blessed are you when men persecute you. That is, when people make fun of you and attack you. Jesus says, be happy and rejoice. Well, you say that that doesn't make sense either. How can you be happy when people are teasing you, mocking you, and persecuting you? Well, Jesus says, if they are doing these things because you love me, then that's good. If they are treating you that way because you are a Christian, because you follow me, Jesus says you are a blessed person. And the reason why you're blessed is because you have a great reward in heaven. You are going to go to heaven one day when you die, and that's why you're blessed. Because they're doing that to you because they don't like you because you follow me. But if you are following me, you are truly blessed. And that's why Jesus says to us, brethren, rejoice and be exceeding glad. He doesn't say, put a little smile on your face. If you really look up what the word means, it says rejoice. In Luke, it says leap for joy. You remember the apostles when they were beaten in the book of Acts and they were threatened and they went out rejoicing? Why were they rejoicing? Because they were identified with Jesus. They suffered on account of the name. You see, the greatest honor that the Christian can have is to be identified with Jesus Christ. That is the greatest honor that we can have when someone can look at us and say, oh, you must be a follower of Jesus. I can tell by the way you talk. I can tell by the way you live. I can tell that you believe the Bible. I can tell you, you can say, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that your grace is in me. Thank you, Lord, that you have caused me to have some witness that they can see something of you in me. Oh, Lord, thank you for this honor. Thank you for this mercy that I will be identified as your child. You see, that is the greatest honor that the Christian can ever have. And so in living the Christian life, it can give the appearance of contradiction. But there is no contradiction. There is no contradiction. Because we are living in an evil world. It's because the context in which we are live, we are not yet in the new heavens and in the new earth. We're in an evil world, and in an evil world, being poor in spirit and mourning on account of your sin is a blessing because there you are in touch with reality. You understand the truth about who you are and what you are in the presence of God. You understand that you are a sinner. You're like that publican who can beat upon his breast and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And that man goes to his house justified. And so, brethren, if you are humbled by the word of God, 
If you are humbled on account of your sins and you come to the Lord confessing your sin, grieving over your sin, the good that I would, I do not, but the evil that I hate, that I do. If you're in, like, and you're, if you're in that condition, you are a blessed man. You are a blessed woman because the grace of God is in you and there is no peace treaty with sin in your heart. Spurgeon said, that the Christian is not, in, not only known by his inward peace, but the Christian is also known by his inward strife because there is war going on within us and we are at war. We're not giving in. We're not living in sin, but we are resisting. We grieve. We mourn. We mortify. We fall. But we get back up and we go to Jesus confessing our sins, seeking his forgiveness, knowing his blood cleanses us from all sin. And we keep going and we say, "If Lord, if you mark iniquities, who can stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And I wait upon the Lord. I wait more than a watchman for the morning. I wait upon the Lord for with the Lord is plenteous redemption. And I can go on in Jesus name because of Jesus Christ. You see, brethren, you are blessed. You are blessed. So, but if living the Christian life, you know, this paradox now, in the minds of an unbeliever, they say, well, that sounds interesting, but I'm not ready for that. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to have these qualms about having a good conscience and about my thought life and you know, I, I, I just don't, I'm just not ready to live that way. If this is the Christian life, that's not appealing to the world. You think the Christian life is appealing to the world? It's not appealing to the world. It's not appealing. The world feels sorry for us. The world may wonder about us. But it's not appealing to the world. But we who our eyes have been opened, we understand the joy of salvation. So what is the purpose of being a Christian then? Why is Paul in that dungeon saying, I fought the good fight, I finished the course? Why is Paul calling Timothy to suffer for the, on account of the gospel? What's the point of it? I mean, we're living in this world. Heaven is where everything will be beautiful. That's true. Everything is going to be made right. But what about now? What do we get now as a believer? Well, I'll tell you. You know what the point of living the Christian life is? The glory of God. The glory of God. The glory of God. That is the objective. Paul, in verse 18 of 2 Timothy 4, as he awaits execution, he says, The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and will save me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be the glory. Those words reveal the whole point. Those words reveal the whole purpose of being a Christian. To whom be the glory. God doesn't know us anything. God doesn't know us anything. There's no entitlements in the kingdom. We are saved out of his grace. Out of the pleasure of his will, we read in Ephesians 1. God is no debtor to any of us. God doesn't have to do, all that he does for us is all of grace. And our response for him is, Lord, may your name be glorified. And so the objective in living the Christian life is the glory of God. You know, something happens to us and in us 
when we align ourselves, when we align our affections with that purpose, you know what happens? It changes everything. It changes our perspective. It shouldn't change it. It really should sharpen it. It put things in the right perspective. When the glory of God is our aim in everything, that is what liberates us. That is where we have the freedom in suffering, in, in persecution. That is where we have the freedom in the world that is getting worse and not better. That's where we have that freedom and that confidence. And when people are turning away from the gospel, we know it is still the power of God. Brethren, we are living witnesses of the power of God. If you are a Christian, that is witness enough that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation because he has saved you. And he is keeping you. And he will keep you to the very end. But not only you. You see, when we are living for the glory of God, it illuminates our mind. You know what the most important thing is in a trial? Some people say, yeah, it's getting out of it. We feel that, and, and I, you know, I feel that too sometimes. Probably more than I like to admit. But, but God, by his grace, he brings you through things. He helps you to get over that. And you know what you should be thinking about. The most important thing in the trial is not getting out of the trial. Our growth in grace, that's important, but our growth has an objective. Our growth in grace is not for our own personal satisfaction. Our growth in grace is to the end that God will be more glorified in our lives, that we will be conformed more to the image of Christ. Our growth in grace is not for our satisfaction. It's for the glory of God. And so the most important thing in the trial and in living in an evil world like this is the glory of God. Brethren, trials and this world and how things are, it is a grand opportunity. To glorify God. Paul was not moved. Yeah, yes, there were times when Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, we despaired of life. But he speaks about their trust was in the God who raises the dead. There was time that we were, we despaired exceedingly. Paul was a human being. He had times of despair where he despaired of life. So he's been, he's on the seesaw and he experienced these things. That's why he said, Timothy, Timothy, do your diligence to come to me because demons have forsaken me. Yes, the Lord is with them, but we need that companionship. We are affected by one another. Our fellowship, we need one another. And Paul needed Timothy. He needs the Lord ultimately, but he still needs others. He said in Romans 8, 18, for I reckon, perspective, for I reckon, reckon is my thinking, the way I'm looking at things. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us. See the perspective? He says, this outward man decay, but the inward man is renewed day by day. He says, wherefore we faint not. We do not lose hope. We are in this tabernacle. We that are in this tabernacle, in this body, we do groan. We are burdened as we are living in this in this fallen world and in our bodies, yes, physically, but also we still have remaining sin that continues to weigh us down. And yes, 
We are those who are blessed that mourn, but we're longing for the day when we will be free from sin. You know, the greatest, one of the greatest joys of heaven, two joys I think about in heaven. The first joy is to see God. The second joy is to be utterly free from sin. Utterly free from sin. But the glory of God, brethren, it changes everything. You know, we look in the mirror and we say, yeah, but I'm not a strong Christian. I fail. I'm not all that I should be. And even Timothy, Timothy was a man of God. That suggests here that he may have been more of a reserve, maybe of a timid type um, personality. Even his physical frame was weak. He had infirmities in his stomach. Whether he had an ulcer, maybe he he had difficulties that may. Paul told him on one occasion, drink a little wine. Not a lot of wine, a little wine for your stomach. But here in, in chapter 1... Paul is telling Timothy, verse 7, for God gave us not a spirit of fear. He's rebuking Timothy in a loving way. He's not being harsh, but he's not letting Timothy off the hook. Yes, Timothy, I remember your tears, and I remember you in my supplications. And Timothy, you are the real deal, your faith is real. And I know things are difficult for you, Timothy. But Timothy, join me in suffering. You have to do your, fulfill your share of suffering. He says, for God gave us not the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and discipline. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but suffer hardship with the gospel. And then he says in chapter 2, Thou therefore, my child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. But Timothy, you're not called to suffer in your own strength. But he says, suffer hardship according to the power of God. Brethren, this is the perspective we need to have in these days of change. In our lives, when we look at the world, brethren, it should not diminish our joy. I'm not saying be indifferent to the world. No, be informed. But don't be overcome with despair of these things. It's the nature of this evil world. It's not going to get better. Do your civic duty. Fulfill your responsibility to the glory of God. But ultimately, we know our citizenship is in heaven from whence we wait for the Savior. It is in the new heavens and the new earth when there will be justice, when everything will be made right, and when we will be made right in every way. You see, our objective as believers is not to see revival. Now, I'm not saying don't pray for revival. Pray for revival. That's good. That sinners are saved. There's more people giving glory to God. But that's not the objective. The objective objective is to glorify God in your life. So I challenge you, start where you are. You don't have to preach sermons. You know what the Bible says about many things. You are a well-taught people. Are you a husband? Be a better husband. Are you a wife? Be a better wife. Are you a parent, grandparent, son, daughter, employee, employer, student? 
wherever you find yourself, whatever the circumstances are, and you think about your sins, the things that you know you need to deal with more, that is a struggle, is a besetting sin, whatever that thing may be, whatever those things may be, whatever they are, you know what they are in your lives. Isn't God worthy to be glorified in your life? Isn't God worthy of more glory? Then look at those sins. Look at those weaknesses. If it's worry and anxiety, take Jesus at his word and stop worrying about tomorrow. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Don't worry about how the bills will be paid. Don't worry about your health. Don't worry about the state of society and the culture. God is in control of all things. He is ruling the nations and Jesus is coming back. Believe, I know you believe it, but believe it and to live like you believe it. And where is the breakdown between what you know and what you practice? Where is the breakdown between your knowledge of the word of God and the disposition of your soul? Find that breakdown and deal with it with the word of God. Take those small steps of faith to deal with yourself honestly. And that's what Paul did to Timothy. He said, Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Timothy, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you something that's not true. Timothy, suffering is inevitable. Timothy, you cannot avoid suffering. But Timothy, I want you to suffer according to God's power. Timothy, God did not give us a power, spirit of fear, but of power and love. Timothy, God will be with you. And God will enable you to glorify him and to fulfill your ministry. Suffer hardship according to the power of God. Remember Jesus Christ of the seed of David. Remember Jesus Christ. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Timothy, preach the word. To him be the glory. Timothy, I'm a living witness. All has forsaken me in Asia. And at my first offense, no one stood with me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Timothy, you have no reason to fear. Timothy, suffer. But according to God's power, I know you're weak. But God is strong and God will be with you. And brethren, that's the attitude we need to have. Whatever we are dealing with in life. You apply it to the culture, you apply it to your sins, you apply it to your family. The glory of God is to be your aim in everything. In everything. So that when you leave this world, whatever the circumstances of your death may be, you will leave behind a memory, a blessed memory of a man, of a woman who believed God who walked with God, a legacy for your children, and who knows through your life, God may use that witness to save others. This is essentially the burden on my heart. There's other things I have here, but we don't have time to look at everything here. But brethren, I trust you get the point of the sermon this morning. I trust you get the point of drawing alongside the Apostle Paul and I trust that God, by his grace, will help all of us to have that holy jealousy for the glory of God and for the freedom that the glory of God will bring into our lives in ways that you and I just cannot even imagine. Well, brethren, may God be glorified in us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of your servant, Paul, the apostle. We thank you, Lord, that this salvation, this gospel continues to be preached. And it will be preached in a whole world for a testimony. And then the end will come. And Jesus shall return. And you will bring in the new heavens and the new earth. Wherein dwells righteousness. And Paul is among the spirits of just men made perfect. He is at home with the Lord. 
And we, those that we love who have died in the Lord, one day shall rise again. And our Father, we ask that you would open our eyes that we may have our hope firmly fixed upon what you have revealed in Scripture. And that we would not be overcome with the despair and the vanity of this world. But we ask that you would help us to pursue your glory and apply these words in ways that the preacher cannot apply by your Holy Spirit and even open the eyes of the young children and, and, and others who may not know you, whoever they may be here this morning. We do pray and ask that you would be all, that you would receive all the glory. And we ask that you would accomplish this by your spirit in our hearts and in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.